Always be recording. Should we just record? Yep. We're recording. <laughs> no, we're not. Yeah, we, we've been recording. We've been recording the whole time. Oh, so, have we really? Yep. That's oh, how boy. you want to roll? So you can start the official thing at this time. The speech, guys. Wait, we're recording already? Oh, my gosh. Well, here we go. This is the big speech. We're in World War II. Matt Schultz is up. What do we got? All right, all right. We got a speech by the General Patton. Um, So, for some context, we're in World War II, all right? We already heard from Winston Churchill, right? The war is upon Britain's doorstep. Um, Germany has quickly gone from invading Poland to and Britain is on their heels, and they're on the they're about to start uh, a tenacious round round of bombing. Then we heard from Franklin Delano Roosevelt. We heard of him uh, talking about the day that lived in infamy. Um, that is Pearl Harbor, the catalyst for America's entry in the war. Right. So we heard from those two. Now. America is declared war. We are stationed in England, ready to launch the counterattack against the Germans. We are on the eve of D-Day. Soldiers, the American soldiers are green. They haven't seen any battle yet. They've been training to prepare for this. And they haven't been told any details yet. So they're in the dark as to the events that are about to take place. General Patton is given the task of rallying the men and preparing them for what they're about to hear in terms of their mission and what they're about to do. So uh, why I chose this speech, um, one, I think just chronologically, I mean, it's, it's sort of the next, the next big event. Um, D-Day pretty universally understood as kind of the, um, yeah, basically the initiation of the, the counterattack, the initiation of America's involvement in Europe. And, um, yeah, one of the more uh, memorable occasions in American military history. And General Patton is certainly one of the biggest personalities in American military history. Um, so, without further ado, I will read an excerpt from his speech. Uh, speech probably would take about 10 minutes to read, so um, we're not going to do that, but I'll read at least a starting section. So this is Patton, 1944, right before D-Day. Yes, June 5th, 1944, right before D-Day. The big one. Let's hear it. The big one. All right. This stuff that some sources sling around about America wanting out of this war, not wanting to fight, is a crock of bullshit. Americans love to fight, traditionally. All real Americans love the sting and clash of battle. You are here today for three reasons. First, because you are here to defend your homes and your loved ones. Second, you are here for your own self-respect. Anywhere. Third, because you are real men, and all real men like to fight. When you here, every one of you were kids, you all admired the champion marble player, the fastest runner, the toughest boxer, the big league ball players, and the all American football players. Americans love a winner. Americans will not tolerate a loser. Americans despise. Americans play to win at all, play to win all of the time. I wouldn't give a hoot in hell for a man who lost and laughed. That's why Americans have never lost, nor will ever lose a war, for the idea of losing is hateful to an American. You are not all going to die. Only 2% of you right here would die in a major battle. Death must not be feared. Death in time comes to all men. Every man is scared in his first battle. He says he's not, he's a liar. Some men are cowards, but they fight all the same as brave men, 
or they get the hell slammed out of them watching men fight who are just as scared as they are. The real hero is the man who fights even though he's scared. Some men get over their fright in a minute under fire. For some, it takes an hour. For some, some it takes, but a real man will never let his fear of death overpower his honor, his sense of duty to his country, and his innate manhood. Battle is the most magnificent competition in which a human being can indulge. It brings out all that is best and removes all that is base. Americans pride themselves on being he-men, and they are he-men. All right. So there we have it. General Patton's speech. Um, so I gave a little bit of brief context for the speech, but I think a little bit more might be helpful just for the general uh, general state of the war. Um, so who's got a little bit of background about the European engagement uh, in the war thus far and America's initial involvement? I'll take a little bit of that. Oh. Yeah, I'll take a little bit of this. You, you lead. Okay. Yeah, you, you lead the way. Okay, so just something to think about, I think, that's uh, helpful is a, quite a bit of time has passed between Pearl Harbor and the day of this speech. So Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941. The date of this speech, June 5th, 1944. So, I mean, you have several years passed between those uh, Pearl Harbor and this event. So what's going on? Why did it take us so long to get to the point where we were finally ready to launch this big invasion into mainland Europe? So um, a couple of things, obviously, uh, some of the bigger battles or more well-known battles in between Pearl Harbor, so kind of America's entrance into the war and D-Day, a couple of them actually happened in the Pacific Theater. So you've got the Doolittle Raid, the Battle of Midway, some pretty large-scale fighting done in the Pacific Theater. The other thing is... It was a pretty intimidating thing, not intimidating in like a weak way, but just a challenging task to get into mainland Europe. So they had started thinking about this invasion D and what ended up being D-Day, I mean, the year before. Well, but it wasn't like it was just like, hey, let's do this. This had took a ton of time, a ton of planning to get this done. Um, in this time period, which some of the time where Patton actually, not that he was made well known, but did some things, um, we kind of went the North African route. And kind of tried to come up through the Mediterranean and through Italy. So Italy had already surrendered before D-Day. Um, they had surrendered in, surrendered in September of 1943. So a lot of fighting was done both in the Pacific, North Africa, kind of trying to move up into Italy before we were finally ready to launch the full-scale invasion into mainland Europe. Um, just another thing, too, I found kind of interesting, just... Um, one of the major turning points in the war was the Battle of Stalingrad, which was started in late 1942. I think it went into into 1943, which is a huge scale, long battle between the Soviets and the Germans. So anyway, so there was a lot of things going on. A lot of time had passed before they were ready to finally launch this invasion um, D-Day. But push comes to shove to win the war. Eventually, we had to get into Europe. And to go conquer, I mean, we need, and we needed to get to Berlin, if you will. So, um, that was kind of the setup, the approach to D-Day. So it took a ton of planning. Like I said, it, um, just took a long time, it, longer than I guess I expected kind of going into it. So I think the Germans knew D-Day was coming or not, I mean, not the day of, but they had actually, what was it called? Uh, the Rommel, I forget his name but a well-known German general was kind of tasked with creating this pretty much wall to keep out any sort of invasion, right? The Atlantic Wall. <laughs> well-named. <laughs> the Atlantic might Wall. Like, might have some fun facts about the Atlantic <laughs> Wall. <laughs> I, have, I have several fun. The Atlantic Wall, you know, I'll tell you what. It's, it is an interesting thing. You know, we see those pictures of Normandy, those kind of funny-looking fences, and like, what in the heck is going on there? That's the Atlantic Wall we're looking at, 2,400 miles long. My gosh. I mean, I don't know what it says about countries that build walls, but <laughs> there you have it. <laughs> um, 
required 200,000 laborers, $200 billion in today's money, the same, roughly, same amount of concrete required to build 1,100 Yankee stadiums. And even the gentleman who designed it, a gentleman, that's sort of an extension of the word, um, Rommel, as uh, Ross referenced there, he did, he was gravely concerned that it would even function, and it clearly did not. It took uh, just one day for the Allies to get through that Atlantic wall. So, yeah, just sort of an interesting thing. That's what the um, Americans leading the way were facing as they got out. Hey, um, Patton, he referenced how many people were killed or, like, how many people should expect to die on D-Day. You know, he threw out the number 2%. I was astounded and intrigued to see that that's about exactly how many were killed on D-Day, uh, 2.5%, judge about 150,000 soldiers and about 3,000 or 4,000 of them died on D-Day. So, Patton knows his stuff. He, he's... I will say though to that number, the when you hear the hundred and fifty thousand, that's the total people we pushed through. So some of those men, not that it wasn't brave, I'm not saying that, but like it wasn't like we sent all one hundred fifty thousand the first ten minutes. Like it was waves and waves over the course of the day. So just to throw out, if you're talking percentages, you know, the first line of people that went, I'm gonna guess well over two percent. Yeah, um, that's that's were a killed, good point. if that makes sense. But I also found it interesting, like, Patton's role, or kind of unroll, but secret role in D-Day. Did you guys research that much? I found it quite interesting. What do you No? Mean? Okay. So, George Patton was a very, I mean, he was a well-known figure. A lot of people said he was the one that the Germans feared the most. So, I don't want to get too much into the Patton biography in case other people have some stuff to add to it. But he was a career military guy, um, fought in World War One. Blah, blah, blah. It was very big. I mean, a big name by World War II. And he had had some success in this campaign between, we'll say, uh, kind of that North Africa. Like there was, I mean, I think the Sicily campaign trying to get up into Italy. So he was a very well-known figure. But and I think we'll find out more later, just his personality. Um, he did some things that will say sidelined him, kind of pulled him out of the front. So you guys will probably talk about it later. But the slapping incidents. um yeah, so we'll get to those more later. But anyway, so he wasn't in, I mean, directly involved in D-Day. He didn't go in. He wasn't on the beaches on D-Day. He was part of a, the allies used him as like a, a decoy. So because of his name, because of who he was, because the Germans in a way, quote unquote, feared him, he was based in England talking to these troops, getting them ready that, and the goal was to kind of divert Germany's attention and they thought they were going to attack in a different place. So that they actually used spies and they like sent out false information. I don't know if it's radio waves or they let things be captured, but they literally created this like they built this up to make it look like Patton was going to lead the invasion of mainland Europe, which the Germans knew would come eventually in a completely different place at a completely different time to throw them off guard to the actual what we consider like June 6th, 1944 D-Day invasion. Um which I know I just I found that quite interesting because I'd never heard that, but I thought it was cool. Dang, yeah, no, that's really cool. And how well? How long was Patton in North Africa? And I guess I I think that now might be a, a good time to kind of hear a little bit more of that background and and maybe why he got sidelined and and a little bit more of the personality of Patton because I think understanding the personality I think gives a lot of uh, richness to the speech itself, especially when we get to some of the less savory or less artistic um, we might talk about later on. So, like, what's a little bit more about Patton, the person, and, and his successes or lack thereof or, yeah, controversial situation in North Africa? And did his time in North Africa overlap with Indiana Jones in North Africa and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Did <laughs> deep deep thoughts from Mike <laughs> So I don't know. You asked how long. I don't. I couldn't tell you how long he is a person. I think 
he was involved in a couple different, like, I'll say major battles or I don't, I don't know the right word campaigns in North Africa. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, one year, two years, exactly how long it was, I guess. But to jump into, I guess, Patton, the person then, um, couple just quick, quick things. He's a military man. He went to, uh, I forget some military school in Virginia before going to West Point. Um, so, I mean, he was kind of a career military guy. Um, he fought with, uh, general, well, I don't know if he was general at the time, but Pershing. So, um, just a little, not fun fact, but interesting fact. So the, we had a little skirmish with Mexico, um, which General Pershing was involved at, of, in going after Pancho Villa, 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 um, uh, out of, I think, New Mexico or somewhere in that area. And, uh, Patton, that's in his very much younger days, pretty much like asked to be part of that. He wanted to be involved in the fight from day, I mean, the get go. Uh, and, uh, interesting story that I think shapes his, shows his personality from even those days. He kind of went on a, not a solo raid, but a small, him and a small group of guys went on some, I don't know if I'd say a mission, but they were involved in something and got in a skirmish with some of these, I guess, Mexican, I don't know if they're soldiers or what you would call them, but um, literally came back with their bodies strapped to the hood of his car. Um, so just something that you wouldn't really think of as like a, as a thing today. Um, anyway, he fights in World War One. Uh, he became, that's when he kind of got into, I think he was part of the, I don't know the terminology, but kind of the beginning of tank warfare. Um, he was wounded in World War One. Uh, came home obviously after that. At some point, he developed a relationship with Dwight Eisenhower, which is kind of interesting. Uh, and this kind of this persona of him as being a fighter, a tough guy. I mean, just kind of throughout his days. Uh, so that's kind of a just a short a short thing on Patton prior to World War Two. Unless anybody's got anything else. Um. Have you guys all seen the film Patton, which gives some nice representation of Patton the Man? George yes, I've seen. C. Stevens, who was the actor? No, I haven't seen the film. We should have. We should have all watched it though, yeah. right? I, I watched some clips to refresh my memory, but yeah, I did see the film. The actor is like uncannily, uh, yeah, physically similar to Patton. Um, as as a runner, I have George to, C. Scott. George C. Scott. As a runner, you were yep, saying. Nice. As a runner, uh, I do have to identify to some extent George Patton. He was um, America's one of America's first pentathletes. Uh, the first time the pentathlon was held in the Olympics, I think, and he was a gold medalist. Um, so yeah, George Patton, the runner. We get each other. Sorry, I'm going to not correct, but just to give a, I feel like I said my last thing quickly um, on the, the raid where they returned with people strapped in his car. This is I'm going to read just a quote from a short. Now, this is a, just a website biography of Patton leading an expedition of three cars and 10 men whose mission was to buy corn for the soldiers in camp. He organized an impromptu raid that netted him one of Pancho Villa's officers and two banditos shot down in a gunfight. Patton armed with a revolver and a rifle. Patton and his men returned to camp with the corpses of the Villaists strapped over the hoods of their cars. He was promoted to first lieutenant. That's what it says. I thought I was kind of unclear on that, so I wanted to clear it up. I do think, yeah, just some of the things that I think just understanding him and his personality, some of the things he did, I don't know if, I mean, not that we can't be objective in how we view them, but just it's a completely different world and culture and like yeah most of the things he did would not be accepted i think today and when we get into these type of i mean we might talk about some of these incidents more which incidents which incidents i'm curious you guys have like punted on it twice something slappy or or whatever what are we the chicago bears punting all the time Well, of course, there is the scene in the film Patton, which happened in real life, where he, uh, I'm pretty sure, now I don't remember the difference between movie and real life. Um, Yeah, 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 no, where he called out the soldier for battle fatigue, as it was called, 
Um, which I mean, you know, is it is not a visible injury, I suppose, but he called him out for being a coward and kicked him out of the hospital and sent him to the front lines. I mean, as it's represented in the film Patton. Um and he apparently got a rebuke from um not President Eisenhower yet, but General Eisenhower. Um so there's there's one instance of he also, I think killed a man, one of his own soldiers, no, yeah, one of his own soldiers, I think, he hit him over the head with a shovel because he was not working fast enough, I think that was like World War One or something like that, but yeah, there's like, yeah, it, it's, it's a pretty compelling anecdote. Um, I can't speak, I don't remember hearing that he killed someone. But the incident with the battle fatigue or, you know, sort of, I don't know if it's like an acute PTSD, I guess I don't understand it well enough. That actually happened twice, um, at least one of the times where he physically struck the man. So you've literally got a soldier that's been fighting and is, has some pretty severe mental things going on. And twice he, well, one of them, he physically hit him and pretty much called him a coward. And you got to go back to the front lines and. Kind of the row, ha ha, where you gotta be a man attitude that without really probably understanding what the guy was going through. Now again, did he really know? Cause did they have as much knowledge of it at the time? Probably not. So I don't know if it's fair to judge him by how much we know today, yet that kind of just fits with his overall personality, it seems like. To be fair though, like it wasn't up until, <clears throat> I mean, it, it... <clears throat> Surprising the degree of free agency that even a soldier would have in the army. Like, you don't have to be on the front line. You can run like a coward back, um, and get out of the war. Like, even, even in American World War II, like, if you want to leave, I think maybe you could have. It's just like, you'd lose your honor and like, wouldn't be dishonorably, wouldn't be honorably discharged. And so I would have thought like, there would have always been like, you're over there, you have to fight, literally you wouldn't have even an option of like running back. So for the fact that it was like the 40s and Patton's known negatively for like slapping two guys and like sending them back to the front line, I don't know, that kind of surprises me that even then it wasn't you should have let them run. Like if they didn't want to be there, they didn't have to or they had a mental handicap like kind of cool he was reprimanded a little for that. I wouldn't have ever thought that that would have been the case. You don't yeah. think it would have been the case that he would have been reprimanded or that he that, that would be like a common mentality still? Uh, both. Um, maybe, it, maybe it did happen a lot. Um, but I don't know. That, that strikes me as like I could just always assume like if you had to go over there you had to like fight to the death and perhaps that wasn't the case. Sure. And I think this kind of I, I think this is a good avenue to maybe like a a little bit of a deeper question. Um I mean he like throughout the speech, even beyond like the, the portion that I read, which I think is probably the most articulate and I think like generally appealing and rousing. Like the rest of it gets pretty intense and pretty graphic at times. Um but he uses several examples of like real men quote quote unquote. Um, you know, he he talks about a guy who fought Germans with a bullet in his chest, uh, a guy who was, you know, fixing out uh fixing wire and his commander called him back and he basically lashed out at his commander calling him a coward. Um and just a lot of these like kind of, uh, I don't know, controversial is not the right word, but these, like, really intense examples and just, like, seeing how he interacted with people, like, in real life, like, not not even just stories he heard of, you know, slapping guys and calling them a Nancy and, you know, telling them to grow a pair, you know, like, he really did that sort of stuff. So, especially within the context of this speech, but even within the context of, of just Patton's behavior otherwise, I don't know. I think it is an interesting juxtaposition to modern, the modern world and the modern view of masculinity. Um, you know, especially when he talks about real men, he men, he uses. This, what people talk about when they're talking about toxic masculinity, you know, that, that term that's, that's kind of thrown around. 
Yeah. Um, is there anything authentic, like good about what Patton's doing? Is there, or like, is this just kind of cartoonish? True, like this is like true blue toxic. You know, like what do you guys think? So, I mean, here's a thought that I think is fairly closely related, sort of trying to make some sort of moral criticisms of his operations. You know, as Landon said, you know, obviously Eisenhower seriously critiqued him for operating the way he did with respect to, uh, quote, battle fatigue soldiers. You know, I think the sort of hypothetical question we're considering is like, well, I mean, if he would not have been how he was, like, would America have still won the war? Um, well, I mean, you had Eisenhower, who was, like, general of, um, wasn't he, like, general of the entire, like, allied forces? General of the Army, I believe, was his title. And, yeah, he was, like, supreme commander of the allied yeah. forces in Europe. So he had yeah, him. he had the title supreme, didn't he? That's awesome. Yeah. Like, <laughs> he was basically the only supreme I was also thinking of the emperor in Star Wars. He's basically the only president Literally, of the world who's yeah. ever existed. <laughs> he was demoted to president of the United States. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you had him who, you know, critiqued Patton for how he operated. You know, could we have actually won the war faster if we had had two Eisenhower type guys? One, you know, someone who, based upon our sort of, you know, assessment here from what we're talking about, obviously had the eye of the tiger, if you will, but also had some sensibility towards compassion. Um, which I think that's the sort of difference which pulls you away from that quote toxic masculinity. You know, I was listening to, um, a little bit on NPR. I did, yeah, a little bit on NPR. Uh, this was like an old interview. But they actually, well, no, no, I, I sent this to you guys. They interviewed Brett McKay, it was like four years ago or something, and it was on this precise idea. They were, they were. I mean, obviously it was a positive note of how they were um, just learning about art of manliness. And Brett McKay's position, you know, which they were interested in, was that, he was trying to mold together those traditional elements that we associate with masculinity with the more modern sensibilities that, you know, men, it's, it's okay and good for men to be compassionate and empathetic. Um, so, so I, I, those are some thoughts that I think sort of, uh, spray in the direction of spray <laughs> they go in the direction of uh matt's matt's question i think that um like when you ask i mean those separate questions are they're interesting and they're kind of hard too because i feel like if you fall directly into either camp you're probably missing a little bit of the boat if or a little bit of the question so like i read something on Eisenhower and Patton, they knew each other and they kind of developed a relationship, I mean, before the war and that some of the people who knew them both, I don't know if they, I don't know if this was a quote or how they got this, but that they would have suspected Patton to be the one to raise higher simply because of his persona, his ambition, that type of thing. Eisenhower, a little maybe softer, spoken, yada, yada, yada. But um, I think of, I'm sure most, a lot of us have seen Band of Brothers, right? So Kind of the opposite, if we're talking the in in terms of masculinity, if we're going to talk about the Patton is kind of the pillar of tough guy, rah, 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 let's go kick their asses type person. I mean, then you kind of have a contrast in a way in like Dick Winters from Band of Brothers, who's calm. I mean, they kind of make fun of him at times, at least early on before he earns their respect. Um, and yet completely exemplifies the idea of a leader who, you know, the troops needed in the war. So I think it's hard to, you know, obviously both of these figures contributed, though, greatly to America's success in the war. So I don't know if it's necessarily like a, yeah, yeah I think Patton, the, some of these ideas, like you asked, Matt, like when you talk about like toxic masculinity, I mean, I think some of the ideas he has are very good, you know, so like, what is he really talking about? I mean, 
He's trying to I mean, encourage bravery, fighting in the face of fear. I think we would pretty universally accept that those are really good things. Yet maybe he takes them a little bit too far. So it's not that he's like full out wrong. Maybe maybe he didn't know enough about battle fatigue, or you know maybe he wasn't maybe quite compassionate enough. But so he kind of takes what could be a good thing too far, and um, where other guys maybe had strengths in other areas. So. Uh, that, that's why I think it's just, I mean, I don't know if you want to say it was Eisenhower or whoever, but like they were able to still use him though, even when they, you know, they had to pull him out maybe of direct combat because of, uh, as a rebuke to some of these incidents, but they were still able to kind of use his persona, like I in this kind of deceptive role on D-Day itself to kind of trick the Germans. Um, so I don't, I just think it's, yeah, maybe that's some credit to Eisenhower or I don't know who was directly involved in that, you know, kind of using his, his strengths when they were needed, but even using his weaknesses as well is kind of a cool thought to me. I like what you said. I like what you said about using his weaknesses because I, I think that is a, a an important element of like um, I think of understanding one like the toxic masculinity idea, but also I, I think it kind of puts. Um, I, I think it puts Patton's character almost in, I, I, I hesitate a lot to say this, but almost like a St. Peter figure, if you want to think of that. Like, if we want to go to, like, gospel stories or something, like, St. Peter was kind of feisty. He, you know, was really quick, impulsive to, to say and do certain things. Um, but he also, like, screwed up colossally, too, you know? Uh that kind of impulsiveness, um, you know, bit him in the butt. But at the end of the day, like, um, you know, he's still like, a, you know, a saintly figure. He's still a man who who kind of like brought himself together and, and was used for good, you know. So I, I think that, um, yeah, I think that's important, an important idea to, to consider when before, I don't know, uh, and that's part of why I, I struggle with the idea of, I don't know, I certainly get the idea of toxic, toxic masculinity in terms of like, yeah, like there's definitely like evil done um, because of like, ma- like quote unquote masculine impulses. Um, but I mean, I think we all agree like harnessing those is the right way to do it. Like that's a true man. Um, but yeah, I think like using his weaknesses is, is an interesting idea and, and I don't know. I, I think that's an important thing to, to consider even, uh, yeah, even today, like when we're talking about, um, just a lot of, a lot of things that I think the world kind of criticizes, kind of like the Macho Man thing. Um, cause I think that can be, that can be used for good. And like, I don't think we should necessarily throw that out. I think two other things too, to kind of jump off you, Matt, but, um, first, like, I think people too also, I mean, need to remember that, like, war is a bad thing. So, like, it is a messy, dirty, hard thing. So, it is easy. I mean, yes, we can kind of look at these actions objectively and say, oh, he shouldn't have done that. But, like, no matter what you're looking at, when you're looking at someone in the moment doing something in the face of horrendous things going all around him, like, you know, it's, 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 I guess you don't, I don't know if you wanted to sit and point a finger either. You know what I mean? So, um, I think that's important to remember. I remember I read that book, Lone Survivor, before the movie came out. I read the book. I remember one of the things that stuck out the most to me was just how, how much he hit home on that point that they were terrified to act in some ways because they knew there were certain things that if they didn't do, they would probably die. But if they did do, American media back home would just attack them for it. So like just the position they were put in was just you're asked to do an impossible thing. You know, it's just kind of so I think that anytime war is involved, you have to remember that um, just that idea. And then to get back to the speech then. So away from the slapping incidents, because, right, those are I mean, yeah, we'll leave. We'll let those be. But the speech itself, like you said earlier, like the parts of it are kind of profane and vulgar. Um, like the part you read was maybe the the more articulate, inspiring portion. But then I was I was also thinking about it like, man, he's also up there. I mean, in a way, putting on a show, right? 
So, like, when he gave that speech on June 5th, that was to mostly new soldiers that hadn't experienced maybe the, the pangs of war, if you will. So those guys are fresh. They came over from America. You know, they like, they don't really know what's going on. So Patton's job was to kind of get them fired up, almost football coach-esque. You know what I mean? He's still in England at the time, the safe, a safer zone. So he was supposed to say something to get those guys fired up. So, you know, uh, like we hear, in, I mean, I think I just think that's an in, like a good sort of good way to think about it is right. Sometimes, I mean, not that sports at all are the same thing as war, but coaches will kind of, you know, get loud and scream. Let's go kick their butts and to just to, to do that, to kind of rile the guys up. And that's something that at least in the speech Pat was trying to do. Um, and I think you kind of see that in. I didn't realize he gave different speeches over the years. He, so he trained soldiers in the States, I think, um, prior to, you know, over to going over to Europe. And some of these, the, the pair, the, the lines or the things he says are almost recirculated through different speeches. And I think that kind of shows, at least in my mind, like, yeah, he's clearly given a speech. He's trying to get these, like, it's almost a show. He's trying to get these guys fired up, if that makes sense. So is toxic masculinity okay during war? You know, I think to share a thought that relates to, I mean, it's just kind of another just riffing off of Ross and Landon's thought there. Oh, man. I mean, okay, I'm, don't podcast scared, right? DP, <laughs> DP, DPS, DPS. <laughs> Say it. Almost say it. I'm leaning towards yes. I know our fans are going to be all over me for that. I'm I'm the I'm the liberal voice, if you will. (laughs) But you know, you are their only hope, Mike. I, I did not read Lone Survivor, but I did read American Sniper. Um, and you know, in there, um. Well, Chris, uh, what's his face? Um, that's the name. Oh, anyway. American Sniper, Chris Kyle. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Chris Kyle. Um, you know, he talks about, you know, similar to Ross, is that you, I don't know if necessarily trained, but culturally, at the very least, you learn that the enemy were basically not human, right? Because if you thought of them as human, then you would you'd have a very hard time killing them, as any person would. So if we sort of take that as kind of a certain layer of toxic masculinity, it's like, gosh, dang. I mean, this is war. This is the frontier of human existence. If if you're going to say, if you're going to... um hold back in the aggressiveness which which you fight this war. I mean, that's obviously not to say you kill civilians, but you hold back in your aggressiveness with which you think of the enemy. enemy. Mm-hmm. It's like, gosh, I mean, oh, oh, I mean, that's such, that's such a hard thought to think through. And I think they're, you know, to kind of riff off of... um the guy from Lone Survivor, him saying, oh, the media will get us. It's like, you know, I, I don't really like when people characterize the media in certain ways. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, he's definitely right in fairness to him that, um, yeah, the media would do, I think, are unfair in being a little more empathetic in just what it's like being in war and having your life online. That's not to say that it's right or even okay to do the things that soldiers do sometimes. Um, but I think part of it just kind of shows like, is toxic masculinity okay in war? Like, I think part of it though, like the question is like, just war is just that messed up. Like we shouldn't have war. I mean, ideally we just don't have it because like, it's not a thing humans should be doing. Like it, it, I don't know. Like, I don't know how to articulate it well, but it's like, yeah, like not, I'm not a pacifist by any means. And like, yeah, I mean, there are certain situations where I think that's kind of the only answer. But like, when you get into those just dirty, messy situations, like, it's just not a good answer. I don't. Yeah, given the 
the game is a world war and the enemy may or may not be exterminating a race and they're humans and we're humans and we both know the deepest, darkest parts of us, like you probably have to get in front of a crowd and make sure you unleash that in your team because it might be unleashed in the other team. Um, and and yet- that's the parameter of the World War II game. As society goes along, can we like make sure they come back to America and are berated by the media and like, hey, you can't keep that toxic masculinity going in a functioning society. Kill it. Um, and we're also going to very much try to kill the next war with, you know, uh, criticizing everything that happened in the last one. I think that's a healthy feedback cycle to pursue to diminish the next war. But if, if a just one is unleashed, I think there's a niche for understanding the worst parts of us and making sure that at least good edges out the, the lesser good. I think something that might last thought on it, I guess, but like, so C.S. Lewis talks about, and I don't know if his mere Christianity or another one of his writings, but that, it's kind of defending a just the idea of a just war, though. So, we, right, we can bash war and say it's terrible. He kind of defends the idea of a just war. And I think he says something, paraphrasing, obviously, but to the effect of, like, yeah, I can, you know, I hope, I, I will fight against this man in war, knowing that we're trying to kill each other, and I hope that if we're both in heaven, we can shake hands someday. So he's kind of using that idea to kind of justify the idea of a just war um, and that you don't hate necessarily hate the person across from you. But then he, I don't know, was it World War One or World War Two that they stopped fighting to sing Christmas carols on Christmas Eve? World, World War One, yeah. Yeah, like, but then you hear stories like that, and it's just like, gosh, I don't know, I don't know. Did you guys Did you see guys, Dunkirk? Did you see Dunkirk? I have not seen it. So there's a weird scene, like the fishermen from UK is going over to save the English. There's an air fight going above. A German bomber lands on the ocean. He survives. He's swimming. The United Kingdom, Britain guy picks up the German bomber pilot in the water, gets him in the boat, and then continues to pick up all the British soldiers. And so, like, there's a German POW on this fisher boat. He's got a German uniform on. And they're like, hey, like, hop on. Like, you're on enemy lines now. Like, we're not going to kill you. And, like, can you, uh, like, help load these English shoulder- soldiers up? Like game over for you and it's like there's i don't know there's a weird humanity in it under the rules of the prisoner of war whatever um it was it was played out in that movie i don't know if that part was true but i mean i think you see similar um like uh hacksaw ridge right he saves not only american but also yeah like foreign soldiers um even if you think about uh, The Patriot, right? Like, I mean, that's obviously a fictional movie, but you've got a guy, you know, taking care of both English and, or I guess I said English, both American and English troops. Um, I think that possibility exists, but yeah, I can see it also just being hard for guys to turn on a switch and turn off a switch. Like, oh, you want to kill this guy? Oh, you want to take care of him? Like, that's just a, and there's, you know, a hard place to be. Um, I am like personally curious. You were uh, um, soldier in the war. You're you've never fought before. You hear Patton. Does the speech? Does it move you to just be like, "Yep, he's right. Let's go fight." I've got to do this, or are you turned off by it anyway? Would it rile you up? I I think I'd be fired up, in all honesty. See, I was a little bit, like, turned off by it. I kind of felt like I was being, like, I was trying to read it as, like, you know, like, reading it like a, a young soldier. I kind of feel like I was being, like, almost peer pressured. You know what I mean? Like, oh, 
the team captain, like the quarterback is kind of like yelling at me, like I'm supposed to do this. I don't really want to, but like I'm supposed to, and I'm kind of a coward if I don't. Um, I don't know. That's, that, that was just my overall sense from reading it. Um, that I'd be kind of like scared into action, if that makes sense. Uh, I, I don't know if I would, I would say turned off like Ross said, but I, I think I can relate to what he said about, um, kind of feeling like a peer pressure type of thing or feeling scared or intimidated by hearing the speech, especially like some of these excerpts that I didn't read, you know, this is, these are the words of Pat. The guts, when the shells are hitting all around you, you wipe the dirt off your face and realize instead of dirt, that's blood and guts of what was once your best friend. You'll know what to do. You know, like there's, you know, <laughs> you know phrases like that. Um, and, you know, talking about ripping out their Germans' guts and using them to grease the treads on their tank. You know, just a lot of really graphic stuff. Like, holy crap, man. Like, if, I were, if I'm just honest, I don't know if, like, turned off would be the thing. But I think there would be something, like, at least churning inside of me. Um, there would be something churning inside of me, like, crap, am I ready to do this? You know? And then, I mean, who knows what I would – I mean, yeah, I have no idea how I would respond to, to the reality of it. But – I don't know. I still think it's a, a useful, I guess, a useful thing to do. It's just because it, 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 you need to come um, close to matching the intensity of what they're going to see, you know? The imagery think, was a useful thing? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, yeah. I mean, I think to the imagery, um, yeah, I mean, I think to some degree the imagery is useful. I don't know if... Um, I guess, I guess just in terms of preparing, um, preparing people to like, you know, especially like shoot, like you realize that's not dirt, that's blood. And that's someone who, you know, you, you had spent the last two years training with. Um, and just coming to terms with that, that being like your reality for the next year or next six months or two weeks or however long it is you, you've got. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think I would definitely be scared by this speech more than I would be like immediately pumped up and psyched. Um, but I think it would be a good scare, you know, like, yeah, just kind of like a gut check type of scare. Mike, I think what oh, are you? Uh, go ahead, Ross. Ross, you go. And then Mike, are you like fired up or? You I'll give you my final layer though to it. To just trying to think about it though, like. I still, I don't know. I think Patton knew who he was talking to, and some of this was intentionally said. Yes, it definitely reflects his personality, but I do think he knew who he was talking to. So, example, 31-year-old Ross, who's married, has multiple kids. Not that I'm some, like, super mature, awesome person, but, like, I'm, I feel like I would have been more the courageous, kind of inspirational St. Crispin's Day type speech, I think, would have done more for me. But 18-year-old Ross, yeah, like, I think blood, guts, <laughs> let's go kick their asses. Like, yeah, dude, I'm right behind you, you know. Um, and I think that is probably more the crowd he was talking to, to be totally honest. You know what I mean? 18, 20-year-old guy, or I don't know how they were, but if you want to kind of think of them, I think that they would be more on that side than the 30-some years old married three kids. You know what I mean? Um, so I think some of it maybe was also – I think it was his personality, but I also think some of it might have been strategic and who his audience was. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be very interested to know, um, you know, as I brought up in conversation, I'm sure before, you know, both of my grandpas were in World War II, not as infantrymen, uh, one great uncle was, but, um, in just learning how this speech compared to, their impression of the culture and the ethos of their war experience. Yeah. Yeah, the great uncle I referenced, uh, Uncle Buddy. Uh, he was, he was at D Day on June 7th, or at Normandy on June 7th. He was there the day after, apparently. Huh. I do think like war is nasty. Like some of the the cursing and profanity, I think it's like oh, that's kind of a turn off. But like, I don't know, cursing happens in the ER. I don't know. Does it happen in like in dire moments? You just get super profane sometimes. And I think 
the level of imagery he had. Like, I think we we look at like the the first thing we talked about. This speech is like, oh, like he said, only two percent of us were gonna die. We looked up that stat. Like, oh, he was right. I think I think if you heard him say only two percent of you are gonna die, and then you hear him say all these very vivid stories, it's like this guy has been here before, and you might walk away and be like, yeah, two out of a hundred of us. All right, I'm gonna storm because like if you just keep fighting, you know, your odds are low. And I believe him, given how specific he was of how this is gonna look. Yeah, I think there was probably a some sort of, I mean, just these young guys just looked up to him so much they probably, ate, to some extent, I'm sure they ate up what he said. Right. Did you guys watch the? I mean, I did. Just the fact that it was, I mean. Again, these weren't guys storming the beaches of Normandy, but the fact that it was the day before D-Day, the day that D-Day was supposed to happen, for a quick fact, but it was obviously postponed to June 6th due to weather. Um, did you guys watch the intro to Saving Private Ryan when we were kind of researching, getting ready for this podcast? Oh, man. So Saving Private Ryan had the first, like, 20 minutes our D-Day, and it's just, gosh, it's just graphic. It's, like, hard to watch, honestly. Yeah, I'll, I actually have watched that, but I, I remember one image from that scene, from that sequence, where a guy gets shot in the helmet, and he pulls his helmet off, like, oh my gosh, whoa, I can't believe I was saved, and then he gets shot in the head, like, I mean, who knows if that exactly, I'm sure, actually, I'm sure something like that happened because, you know, I'm sure someone told someone about that story and, but yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Have you heard the craziest Patton? Do you know what he believed about himself? Have you guys read this? Oh, yeah, I do. He believed he was reincarnated and he had some crazy, crazy beliefs. I have not heard this. Tell me. He did. He he kind of, I don't know if he's Christian or not. Like, he very much, I think he went and, like, prayed and wrote down all of his speeches and prayers and um, had that. He also, he had this very weird, I think in one of his books he wrote all this out, but he believed in reincarnation. And he specifically believed himself to have been in every, like, major battle since the beginning of civilization. He thought he fought with Alexander the Great. He thought he was in the Hundred Years' War. He was a Viking. Um, he was with Caesar and Napoleon and whatnot and, like, was very specific about how familiar he was with, like, random towns in rural France on the border of France and Germany. And he had been in this forest 200 years ago with Napoleon and, like, therefore was going to, like, get his way to Berlin, etc. And very much just, like, thought of himself as, like... a a mystic eternal warrior on like the the landscape of Europe, Asia or whatever. Um, so that was just a weird quirk about him. I think I'll tie that into, I think we have to read his, the last paragraph of his speech. May I, may I proceed with reading, reading the last paragraph? Go for it. I think like, you know, you're, this is clearly the second world war. It's a big deal largest amphibious invasion of a continent um and he just like plays into that like where else would you i don't know need to be in this moment in time in the world which you can see when there's a war going on like every 22 year old feels compelled to like go fight and he just like plays on that fact and he says there's one great thing that you men will be able to say after this war is over and you are home once again you may be thankful that 20 years from now when you are sitting by the fireplace with your grandson on your knee and he asks you, what did you do in the Great World War? You won't have to cough, shift him from one knee to the other and say, well, your granddaddy shoveled shit in Louisiana. No, sir. You can look him straight in the eye and say, son, your granddaddy rode with the great third army and that son of a goddamn butch named George Patton. Like, he just like that. I don't know. I think he like found a way to like strike to the tune like 
this is going like almost like Achilles in the Trojan War. Like you fought with Achilles, and he just built himself up into this mythology. Like you get to go do this with me, and we're gonna make history. And they kind of did. Like, <laughs> yeah. See, now um, I'm fired up. Yeah, good. I changed my mind. I'm going. I'm going. <laughs> You fought with Achilles. <laughs> That's right. So, what um, what was the end of Patton? Like, what happened throughout the war? And because he he died, um, yeah, kind of towards towards the end of the war. So, who has who has some details about the uh, the remainder of Patton's life? Car accident. Died in a car accident very shortly after the war. They didn't show that in the film. It would have been too humiliating, probably. Too. Uh, hey, I just got an email from Steve, our producer, uh, addressing some of the belief items that Landon was talking about. She had a finer point on them. Um, he was officially a Christian, um, if you will. Um, a heretic, though, obviously. Heretic. <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> But he was actually sort of ecumenical, uh, despite his sort of hard-headedness that we sort of get the impression of. Uh, here's a quote from him, uh, from historyonthenet.com. God was probably indifferent in the way he was approached, but Patton opposed his daughter's marriage to Roman Catholics. So God was indifferent to all religions except for Catholicism. <laughs> he actually read the Quran and um, I think this is the Hindu text, Bhagavad Gita, or one of the Hindu texts, and they have several, I think. Um, let me think if there's anything. Oh, here's kind of just a riff on his uh, anti-Catholicism. I had all the non-Catholic chaplains in the other day and gave them hell for having uninteresting services. I told them that I was going to relieve any preacher who talked more than 10 minutes on any subject. I will probably get slapped down by the church union. Okay, that's what I got. Died in a car accident and just uh, put a little bit of salt on Landon's thought of his religious belief. So should we get into the conspiracy? All right, you guys, yeah, we should. And you have it wrong, I think. No, what? no, I'm getting uh, signals from Steve. It was a car accident. <laughs> I, know, I know, I know, but all right, ask, ask the question in our notes. Like let's let's get to that. Let's let's talk don't, about going for the final question. Yeah, yeah. All right. So I'll give kind of the theory. All right. So this theory was was put out there by one Bill O'Reilly in his book Killing Patton. That rather than a car accident, uh, Patton was in, was intentionally assassinated uh, by order of Stalin. In order, because supposedly Patton was uh, was starting to campaign that um, that Russia was the next big threat, and that the United States needed to deal with Russia now as opposed to letting them rebuild and regain power. So, in order to silence Patton and silence um, an advocate against or, or someone who knew the the secret quote unquote of, of Russia's. Um, uh, of a potential Russian rise to, to malevolence, uh, Stalin had Patton killed or murdered intentionally. So that's the theory. Do you have something to add to that, Latin? Did I get? Did I butcher that? Or uh, um, first of all, this is a great transition into our speech next week by George Wallace and a similar move that was plating out in U.S. politics over what to do with communist Russia and how the U.S. would respond. So to be covered next week. Second. I read that Bill O'Reilly book and I didn't, I think, I think he was, he was possibly killed for malicious reasons, um, that even the CIA or whatever it was at the time, like we wanted the wars to stop. Patton was out there beating the drum, like fired everyone up, keep the war machine going. Let's go on and move to Stalin and Russia. And even like internal U.S. forces are like, dude, it's over. Like, we can't have any more war. Stop beating the battle horn. Um, so, the, like, who did it, I'm not sure. 
I didn't think it was poison, though. I thought it related to the car accident, and there was, like, a low-pressure bullet shot at his, like, it, it didn't, like, puncture his spine, but it was, like, enough to, like, dismember the vertebrae, which he ended up dying from, like, a spinal cord injury that almost had nothing to do with, like, his head hitting the glass. Um, but it was a weird car accident nonetheless, I think. Definitely died in a weird car accident. That's, that's yeah. established. Okay. So I, the question is, on a scale from 0 to 10, how plausible is the Bill O'Reilly killing patent theory that Stalin poisoned slash orchestrated a murder of some sort and or the CIA orchestrated the murder of him of some sort? I think Stalin killing him, you'd have to say hi. Stalin killed everybody. And you have what we've already described as the general who Hitler feared the most in Europe with an enormous army saying, let's go get Stalin. Yeah. To say that the guy that you know kills everyone who does he doesn't like, pointing at the guy saying, this man with a huge army is coming at me. To say that there's, I mean, yeah. I'm not saying it happened, but it seems pretty at least possible to me. Poison sounds a little, like, odd. I think car accident sounds more realistic. Yeah. He died from his spine being severed, almost. Um, how he got there. Well, we'll ask based, you. Based upon Landon's presentation and my research, which consists of the first page of search results for Googling car accident pen, I'm going to put it a strong... Four out of ten that he was assassinated. Is four no. out of ten strong? Really? <laughs> I, I think that's a fair. <laughs> four out of six is lukewarm. Like that range is the lukewarm range. I'm I'm surprised you said I'm surprised you gave it a four. I thought it, I would have thought for sure you'd give it like as I don't know. I I don't know enough. To be 100% sure it didn't happen. So I'm going to give it an honest benefit of the doubt. Five would be pure benefit of the doubt. Um, but, you know, it's a conspiracy. So it's probably not true. So we'll take away a point. Yeah, I was going to say a two. A two? Now, I was almost going to say a one. Stalin was a pleasant guy. He probably, brief, he probably didn't do Wikipedia it. Wikipedia <laughs> search from our producer, Steve. Uh, yeah, uh, it, it seems, uh, yeah, it, it, to me it seems a little far-fetched. Um, and it just the, the circumstances of his death, um, I don't know, I mean, seem to be pretty well accounted for. Like car accident, like spinal cord injury. Like blood clots happen with that. Like, listed as a low-speed Head on, like. Did the other guys in the car die? No, no one had any other injuries except for him. (laughs) Whoa! (laughs) Six out of ten. Six out of ten. (laughs) You know what? I'm jumping on board. Eight out of ten. Stolen freaking did it. (laughs) I think we need Ross and Landon to cover this conspiracy like they covered the JFK shooting on location. Right. We should do another episode (laughs) that's at least an hour's worth with film footage. (laughs) An exclusive podcast live on location. I'm going to give you guys a quick, a quick cut. Yeah. No, no, not like cut the episode, but we'll cut. That's a signal to cut this out when I said the word cut. We can keep it in if we want. I think it's an interesting topic. We won't get to it tonight, but we've kind of referenced D-Day as the turn of the war. Dude, the Battle of Stalingrad was the turn of the war. Like, yeah, we I take credit. Yeah, those numbers. Yeah. So, I'm just going to read you guys a couple numbers here. American forces lost in World War II, 400,000. British, British forces, 400,000. French, 200,000. Soviets? 8.6 million is the low end of the estimate. They okay. accounted for order they accounted for over 9 The Soviet Union's military accounted for over 90% of allied deaths in World War II. 
so the fact that Americans are like, oh, we came in and won the war, like, I mean, I just don't know how you can say that by the numbers. The Battle of Stalingrad alone, the Soviets lost double of what the Americans lost in the entire war. Yeah, I'm um, also always the aggressor, though. I'm not they saying Stalin was a good guy. I'm still on board. Stalin got Patton, together with though. Hitler. They divided Poland in half, and then each took it. Yeah, I mean, Hitler was like, oh, he's being aggressive. No, like, whatever, Russia. Like, Russia advanced into enemy territory equal to Hitler. And so he was always the aggressor and the ally. And, you know, Roosevelt obviously never quite trusted them. Um, yeah. Which is why Patton wanted to go keep on fighting against him because he never trusted him either. Yeah. But, yeah, those numbers are crazy. I mean, that's like... Yeah, to run those against their population. other allies? Yeah, they lost like 8% of their country's population. That's insane. Dang. Wild. Uncut. Yeah, Stalin did it. 8 out of 10. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I I think for the most high profile, the most high profile um, um, general against Russia to then be, to then die in a freak accident on the warring territory two months after it all ends, like, that's not, stuff like that isn't too coincidental. I'd say a seven. All right. I think that sets us up very nicely for hearing what, what's his name? Something Wallace has to say about, uh, yeah, yeah. Talking, talking Stalin, communism, how does this all play out post World War II? Really a perfect transition. Awesome. Looking forward to it. Guys, I think that's a wrap. Cue the music. One, one o'clock Sunday, Saturday. We'll talk about that to-do list for the podcast. Mm-hmm. You, yeah. I can't believe you guys don't think Stalin did it.